Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Chaddesden, 1921. My gran died a couple of days before Christmas. Now, I may be a little impartial on the subject, but she was a wonderful woman. Warm and generous, loving and disarmingly honest. Up until I was four or five, my parents and I lived with her and my granddad in a small, immaculately clean terraced house in the southern suburbs of Manchester. With my parents and granddad out at college and work respectively during the week, each day it was just her and I alone together at home. By the time I'd started primary school, my little sister had come along, as did our move to our first family home. But regardless of this very little change in our lives, the perfect little terraced house was still the entire focus of almost every bit of our lives. Gran and Grandad were the keystone that held siblings, cousins, parents and in-laws together and gave us all strength. Beside their children, grandchildren, son-in-laws and collie dog Oaksy, the one true love my gran and grandad shared was their allotment. Coming from farming families in rural Ireland, their chance to have a little plot of land in which to sow, tend to and grow their own food was almost part of the soul. It brought more joy and pride as it's possible to imagine a narrow strip of soil could, where its bounty gold, as opposed to potatoes, carrots, runner beans and strawberries. Grandad had spent day after day turning the soil, weeding the beds and manicuring the thin strips of grass which separated each crop as though those little patches of green were the centre court at Wimbledon. Gran had tended to the flowers, take care of the greenhouse and run shuttles between home and the bench in front of the shed, returning with cups of tea, sandwiches and more cups of tea. It was a passion they shared. They welcomed all their family to enjoy it too, of course, but primarily it was their shared passion. It was, to use common parlance, their thing. For Percy Atkins of Francis Street in Chadderston, Derby, the allotment was his thing. Formerly a manor house and ground to the east of the city, the estate was purchased by Derby Council in 1916. By 1922, the site was given over to a row upon row of new homes, at the heart of which was a municipal park with allotments on its eastern edge. Percy and his wife Maud were originally from Cambridgeshire. They married in the January of 1914, and by 1919 the pair had settled into married life in Derby. Maud, whose maiden name was Eakins, had before they moved north been a housemaid. While the couple seemed to all observers to be very much in love, the allotment certainly wasn't Maud's thing. It was nearly a mile and a half from the family home, and with two young children to raise, she was happy for Peter to spend long days growing and harvesting food for the family table. The couple didn't need to grow food. Since moving to Derby, Maud didn't even need to work. Peter had a respectable and reliable job as a railway guard. The allotment 
number 48, was simply the hobby of a man of seemingly simple tastes, and one which benefited all the family. It was, however, a family with secrets. The greatest progenitor of these secrets being Percy himself. They were secrets that would mean that among the cabbages, carrots and potatoes, on the 2nd of January 1922, Maud's body would be discovered. Her killer, the very man she had put her entire life in the hands of. The reality of Percy and Maud's marriage was somewhat different from the picture they presented to the outside world. It seemed that as the years passed, they simply grew apart. Percy, when he wasn't working on the railway, spent very little time at home. His horticultural pursuits seemed to be more a priority than his family. To say that the dissatisfaction with the relationship was one-sided would be unfair. Neither friends nor neighbours believed that this particularly perturbed Maud. The slightly dull Percy was welcome to his hobby. From Maud's point of view, he wasn't like he had a string of lovers across the city. The only conversations they ever enjoyed were about men from the allotment, vegetables he grew on the allotment, or tools he'd need to get a better maintained allotment. The theory would seem to be that the longer he spent on the allotment, the less chance his affections would stray. Percy's mission to perfect his carrots meant that on occasion he'd visit plant nurseries or tool merchants in different parts of the county. Visits that sometimes necessitate an overnight stay. Over the years, Maud had grown used to this, so when, in early September 1920, when she was told that he'd been Ashbourne overnight, she saw no reason to be concerned. On that trip, however, Instead of spending the evening discussing soil quality in the snug of the Horns public house with his fellow horticulturists 13 miles away in Ashbourne, he made the acquaintance of 33-year-old Margaret Milton at a social event at the Cooperative Hall in Derby, less than a mile from his home. Fabricating a picture of himself as something other than what he was, Percy told Margaret that he was single, with no children and, rather oddly, that he worked in a different job at the railway yard. With no reason to disbelieve him, Margaret was delighted that the chivalrous Percy walked her home, and then thrilled that two days later, this seemingly eligible bachelor returned to visit her as promised. Over the course of the next six months, Percy returned to Ashbourne, or in reality Margaret, on an almost weekly basis. On each occasion, he explained to Maud that he had a lot of business to attend to in some far-flung corner of the county. In reality, though, he was taking a two-mile round trip across the city to Normanton. In fact, Percy not only convinced Margaret that he was a suitable suitor, but also ingratiated himself into the life of a wider social circle. Friends and neighbours had looked forward to his visits, and as a group that enjoyed social events at the cooperative club. If the term... Feet under the table was in need of a practical example. It seems Percy was your man. Whether it was a gradual or grown suspicion, or simply a bolt of clarity, 
by the summer of 1921, Maud confronted her husband with his suspicions, and they were suspicions that Percy readily confirmed. He had been away with another woman, on each occasion he'd been to Ashbourne, a woman with whom he'd fallen in love. There'd never been any violence in their marriage, never really any major disagreements. Percy and Maud acquiesced around each other, finding a mutual accommodation. With this revelation, though, Maud was in no mood for compromise. Within the day, she'd packed her belongings and, leaving her children with their father, she left the marital home for her parents, down in Huntingdon, some 70 miles away. With his wife down in Cambridgeshire, Percy thought himself free to enjoy a new life, something he did with as much enthusiasm as it's possible to imagine. He continued to woo Margaret at the same time as building a close relationship with her friends and family, the only slight issue being his two children. While he was either working or visiting Margaret, for the large part of the day they were cared for by a willing neighbour, but the longer the relationship went on, the greater the need to find a more long-term solution became apparent. It's not known when, or even how he pulled it off, but Percy managed to convince Margaret, as well as the young children themselves, that he was in fact their uncle, and that they were in his care as a result of his brother's abandonment of them. To confirm his commitment to her, on the night of the presentation of this supposed niece and nephew, Percy asked Margaret to marry him. To what extent Percy thought the practical consequences of proposing marriage to Margaret isn't known either. Her response to him, however, is. Not only was she fond of the man she loved and loved her, who'd gainful employment and was accepted by her family, but also took responsibility for his brother's children. Could there really be a more perfect man with which to spend the rest of her life? In fact, could there be a more perfect husband? She saw no reason on earth to turn down such a wonderful man. Within months of Maud's departure to Huntingdon, at the Bakewell Parish Church, Margaret's family church, and one still attended by her parents, the bands were read upon the upcoming wedding between Percy and Margaret. That Bakewell is, as a crow flies, 25 miles from Derby, might also have had something to do with the location of their nuptials. Right up to their wedding day, on the 14th of November, 1921, Percy strived to maintain his old life in the eyes of those who knew him. The old family home was kept well maintained. The children cared for. His allotment kept in immaculate order. Maud, he told people, had been called to look after an alien relative, so he'd struggle on until a return. He was just that type of guy. With the upcoming marriage to Margaret, though, it became a necessity for these two separate existences to come together, an issue that was hastened when, four days before the wedding, Margaret was informed by an acquaintance called Mrs Keyes that not only was Percy married already, 
but the two children he claimed were his niece and nephew were in fact his daughter and son. Whereas three months earlier, when Maul confronted him with the suspicions of his affair, Percy admitted to his lies. Now though, faced with the possibility of an even more awkward conversation with Margaret, he adopted a different tack. He jettisoned the honesty is the best policy approach and instead deployed the dig yourself into a deeper hole strategy. Percy admitted the two children were his, that Bermord had died of consumption a year earlier, leaving him a widow. Having had such a significant deceit confirmed to her from Percy's very lips, admittedly only partially, Margaret was rightly sceptical of Percy's quasi-confession, and with the wedding just days away, demanded to see Maud's death certificate. How Percy pulled his deceit off will remain a mystery. Whether Margaret's reluctance to expose herself to social embarrassment played a part is possible, but Percy somehow persuaded Margaret that the death certificate was with a friend across the city and that he'd go after the wedding. When the celebrations were over, he said, he'd make that gruelling two-mile journey traversing Derby to retrieve it. The pair were, therefore, married as planned on the morning of November the 14th, 1921. Percy was clearly a man who was capable of compartmentalising different aspects of his life. A man capable of creating a lie so convincing that he almost believed it himself. What was going through his mind as he stood at the altar of Bakewell Parish Church, waiting for his bride to arrive. It could have been all number of things. He was about to commit the crime of bigamy after all. Was he thinking of Maud? Maybe. If he were, the fact that for the previous six weeks he'd been in constant correspondence with her would likely be the reason. The pair had arranged to meet later in the week, back in Derby, to divide the contents of the family home between them. It would be the final act of separation between the two. After all, to anyone who asked or cared, she was buried at Nottingham Road Cemetery. As Percy loaded the furniture from his former marital home on Francis Street in Chadderston into the cart to be taken to his new marital home, it would have been obvious to him that Maud wasn't dead. She was very much alive and justifiably, very much up for an argument. She wanted the children, and on discovering that Percy had moved on to wife number two while still married to wife number one, she was going to play Mary Hell until she got what she wanted. She didn't care about the furniture, she just wanted the children to live with her, away from the influence of Percy. Unbelievably, Percy somehow managed to dissuade Maud from going straight to the police and reported him as a bigamist. If she could give him a couple of hours, he needed to collect some tools from the allotment, and once they were packed into the cart, he and Maud could come to some arrangement. She could come along with him if she liked. Maud did. The wedding and Percy's final meeting with Maud had taken place in early November 
1921. By the December of the same year, Percy, Margaret and his son, his daughter having packed off to live with Maud's family, had set into a contented pattern of life. Percy kept on his allotment for another year, as he wanted to hand it over in as good a condition as possible to the next holder. Margaret didn't mind that too much. He rarely went to it any more, and, in contrast to his life with Maud, he spent most of his time, when not working, at home with the family, maintaining what appeared to be a picture-postcard life. The life of the other allotment holders carried on regardless. There was always something to do around the allotments, whatever time of year it was, and anyway, it was a relatively private place to take a stroll or walk the dog. One such dog walker, it's always a dog walker, was fellow allotment holder Thomas Gore. He was out walking his lurcher off lead around the allotment site in Chesden early on New Year's Day in 1922. Sniffing, as he usually did, from one clump of grass to the next, the dog picked up a scent he'd not noticed before and darted straight towards allotment number 48. Towards the rear was a raised patch of recently dug earth. The mound was around a couple of feet wide. The length, about the height of a woman. What was found beneath the earth was the body of Maud. Her remains a lifeless ensemble of decomposing body parts, still clothed in a blue-grey coat, a grey skirt, green jumper and black lace-up boots. Her green felt hat, unceremoniously thrown down beside her, discarded but buried in the same makeshift grave. Immediately alerting the police, the identification of Maud was completed quickly. She was known in passing to Thomas Gore, and while he wasn't sufficiently confident to say it was definitely her, others were swiftly found who knew her well. For the six months prior to Percy's wedding, prior to the final meeting between the pair, Maud had been lodging with a couple called Henry and Hilda Butcher. What had started as a purely practical relationship had, in a short time, developed into a meaningful friendship between Maud and Hilda. Hilda was able to provide the certainty of Maud's identity that the police needed, aided by the fact that the boots Maud was discovered in had been a gift from Hilda herself. Hilda also provided an additional piece of information that Maud had not been seen or heard of since early November. It doesn't require the deductive abilities of Sherlock Holmes to suggest that, when a woman is found dead and buried on an allotment, in a state of decomposition that suggests she's laid there for some time, and that the allotment has been rented long-term by her husband, then the husband in question might be someone the police should talk to. Given that Percy had left the marital home and been as diligent as he could in compartmentalising his life, founding where he might be now could have been a problem. Fortunately, this is where the butchers were able to assist the police for a second time. Henry, the husband, worked for the same railway company as Percy, and as such, his employer furnished the police with a current address that meant, on the morning following the discovery of Maud's body, the police found themselves knocking on the door of a certain house on Corporation Road in Normanton. The person who opened the door that morning to the police 
was the unsuspecting Margaret. Asking to speak to Mr Atkins, she informed them that he wasn't home. Inquiring as to her identity, she told them the truth. She was his wife, Margaret Atkins. Bemused, one of the constables saw young Leslie, Percy and Maud's son, playing on the hearth behind Margaret. Is that child your boy, Mrs Atkin? they asked. No, he's the son of my husband and his late wife. Have you been married long, Mrs Atkin? No, not long, only since November. Is something wrong? I think we really need to speak to your husband, Mrs Atkin. Some things are easier said than done, and a face-to-face conversation with Percy Atkin wouldn't be happening immediately. Just the day before, Percy had decided that he was going to visit his sister, Elaine, who lived in New Malden in south-west London, and had taken a train south the previous afternoon. Margaret had no idea what the reason for such an impromptu and hastily arranged visit might be. The police, on the other hand, had their suspicions. failure of the new Labour government to secure a historic fourth term in office ushered in a conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government in 2010. One of the key planks of its legislative agenda was criminal justice and in 2012 the publication of its white paper on the subject entitled Swift and Sure articulated a belief that justice delayed is justice denied. The concept drew upon a principle laid out in the Magna Carta, written nearly 800 years before, that when a crime is committed, the perpetrator should be apprehended as quickly as possible, their trial undertaken in a timely manner, and that their punishment not only be an appropriate deterrent, but also known and understood by the public. The murder of Maud Atkins, 90 years previous to the publication of Swift and Shaw, met its model for criminal justice in the most effective of terms. Percy was arrested in New Malden on the 3rd of January 1922, just two days after the discovery of Maud's body. Within days of arriving back in Derby, he found himself in the dock at Derby Magistrates Court, or Police Court, as it was referred to at the time. In the course of the short hearing before the magistrates, Percy denied any part in Maud's murder. The nature of the hearing left no opportunity to expand on his potential defence, its purpose simply to remand him in custody until his trial for the murder of his wife, which took place just weeks later in mid-February. Held at Derby Assizes, under the watchful eye of Mr Justice Horridge, Percy repeated his previous plea of not guilty. The prosecution was led by Sir Ryland Atkins. As well as being a barrister, Ryland was also a Liberal Member of Parliament for the constituency of Middleton and Prestwich in Greater Manchester. A wily political operator, he held his seat for over a decade despite boundary changes, the collapse of the Liberal government and his part in the knotty negotiations to establish the Irish Free State. 
Ryland's argument was simple. That Percy, an habitual liar and bigamist, in starting his new life with Margaret, had sought to wipe out even the slightest remnants of his previous marriage, until such time as the deceit became unsustainable. When that moment of truth came, as it surely would, he took any and all courses of action beyond admitting the truth. His relationship status, the existence of his wife, the existence even of his children. When reality came into conflict with an inconvenient truth, he turned to his old partner in crime, deceit, to dig him out of whatever mess he found himself in. The reappearance of Maud, the wife he'd assured Margaret was long dead, unfortunately required approach somewhat more brutal than the pain caused by dishonesty. He needed her to go and never to return. He convinced her to join him on his allotment, where he murdered her and callously buried her body in a hole, previously prepared for planting an apple tree. Given the weight of evidence against the defendant, it's difficult to imagine a process more cut and dry. Well, dear listener, in the dock stood Percy Atkin, a man with such a capacity to believe his own hype that the box office value of the trial should never have been in doubt. As opposed to the pyrotechnic poker-like play that takes place in US courts, in the UK, jury selection is a relatively moribund affair. A jury is selected, and then the defence and the prosecution have the opportunity, after a few brief questions, to propose replacing any members they feel might be prejudiced against their argument. It isn't guaranteed that a challenge to a certain juror will be accepted. The change is entirely at the discretion of the judge, after he or she had heard the challenge from one or two of the parties. Percy Atkin, a man not unaccustomed to imaginative thinking, challenged the very idea that a woman should sit in judgment of him. His rationale was that given they may have had experience of men in their lives who weren't always entirely honest, this had prejudiced their opinions against him. As a result, and to the annoyance of the packed public gallery, a jury entirely made up of men was sworn in by the lunchtime on the first day of the trial. It was at this point that the arguments began. A string of witnesses were called to place Percy and Maud together on the day of the murder. At the house, while Percy loaded the furniture into the cart, Strolling together around Derby, Maud in a clearly distressed state, the walking along the canal in the direction of the allotments. Though nobody is able to place them on the actual allotments, the fact that a co-worker of Percy's had seen them together heading along the canal in the direction of the allotments, quarrelling, was presented as an indication that they were not on good terms, speculating therefore that their destination was, in all likelihood, the allotments. Defending Percy was King's counsel, Mr H. Maddox. Suggesting a variation of maybe poor lighting, witnesses being on bicycles, drizzle and the difficulty of telling one woman for another in a winter coat, Maddox sought to challenge any idea that the couple had been together at all, outside of them clearing the house of furniture. One witness, a work colleague of Percy, was insistent that he knew the couple so well there could be no possibility that he was mistaken. Undeterred, 
Maddox questioned how he knew Percy and Maud were arguing. To quote the question, can a quarrel often not be mistaken for a kiss? This was a line the public gallery enjoyed hugely. The witness, though, that most of the public had come to see was Margaret. Timid in both manner and voice, she taught the court through meeting Percy, the lies he told her, and the romance which blossomed into marriage. Maddox had very little with which to challenge Margaret. No jury would believe Percy's word over that of Margaret, who, by all concerned, was considered the additional victim in the case. All he could do was attempt to pick at her statement that she'd made during question by the prosecution. Some witnesses had seen Percy in the vicinity of the allotments the past midnight on the night of the murder. The suggestion by the prosecution was that once Maud had been murdered, he temporarily hid her body before returning in the early hours of the following morning to move her to a temporary grave. Margaret said that Percy returned on the evening in question, incidentally claiming that the furniture which had come from his previous marital home had in fact been given to him by a colleague who was emigrating to Australia. She explained that she didn't know whether he'd left or returned to the allotment after she went to bed. Maddox said that surely, if they shared a bed, she'd have noticed her husband leaving in the middle of the night. No, replied Margaret. Percy was barred from the bedroom, so slept downstairs in the parlour. This was another hit from the gallery. This was another hit with the gallery. The most chilling testimony came from Dr Southern, who carried out the post-mortem. He explained that Maud had suffered a severe blow to the head, which rendered her unconscious. The actual cause of death, though, was asphyxiation. He explained to the silent court that with no defensive wounds on her body and no signs around her neck and head that she'd been strangled by hand or with a cord of some sort, the likelihood was that Maud had been alive when she was placed in the ground, that she died either while conscious or unconscious under the weight of the earth that Percy had used to cover her body. The words of the doctor were left to sit with the jury. The prosecution rested its case. All that remained was for the defence to play the somewhat derisory hand that they'd been dealt. Magical thinking and manipulation by dishonesty had delivered Percy to the position he now found himself in. It seemed unlikely that he'd changed tack at such a late stage, and at least honest to his character, if not the court, the defence made a shock admission. Percy had buried Maud on the allotment, but he hadn't killed her. Taking the stand, Percy explained that he'd been walking with Maud in the direction of the allotments and, like his counsel had said, they hadn't been arguing, but in fact kissing. See, he had been paying attention. At some stage in the journey, he realised he needed to return to the house on Francis Street, so told Maud to carry on, and he'd meet her at the allotment. When a short while later he arrived at the allotment, Maud was nowhere to be seen, so he walked in the direction of the canal, the route she would have taken, and discovered her lying dead on the towpath. Shocked, distressed and concerned that he, as a bigamous husband, would come under suspicion, he panicked, and instead of raising the alarm, dragged her to the allotment 
and buried her in the hall, the public gallery, which had been full and vocal throughout the trial, were incredulous in their disbelief of his version of events, to the extent that the judge, Mr Justice Horridge, had to call for order, and warned that any further barricade would result in a clearance of the public gallery, and those responsible being found in contempt of court. It seems, given the duration of the jury's deliberations, that they were as sceptical as the public when it came to Percy's explanation of the events on the 14th of November, 1921, as they spent less than an hour concluding that Percy Atkins was guilty of the murder of his wife Maud. At the time, in English law, the crime of murder offered a judge just one option when it came to sentencing, that of the death penalty. Mr Justice Horridge said that he'd concurred with the decision of the jury and prayed that in what time he had left, Percy would find a way to come to terms with his fate. Not one to miss an opportunity to let fact get in the way of him escaping responsibility for his actions, at appeal Percy yet again changed his story. This time, while maintaining his innocence of a murder, he admitted that he and Maud hadn't parted ways on the canal path on the best of terms. Atkins said that he and Maud had had a quarrel, which ended when she threw her wedding ring at him and walked off. Atkins then claimed he spent a while looking for the ring before going off to search for his wife, later finding her dead, apparently having fallen in the dark and hit her head on a rock. To avoid suspicion falling on him, he buried her in the anointment. Regardless of this, Percy met his fate on the gallows at Bagthorpe Prison at 8am on the 20th of March, 1922. Described by the Derby Mercury as being without ceremony, his body was laid to rest, as was the law, within the walls of the prison. So here I am, I'm stood on Highfield Lane, which is a small, quite neat little suburban street. It's got large semi-detached houses, which have all been along one side anyway. They're all extended to fill growing families and there's nice cars on the drive. And in front of me, there's two places. This is huge big expanse that used to be an old estate and then was given over to the public good at the beginning of the 20th century and a huge part of it is Nottingham Road Cemetery and it's one of those cemeteries which goes on 
for as far as the eye can see. There's blocks of rows of 40, 50 gravestones. And as you look out over it, it's probably one of the few graveyards in the country to have space. There's so much grass. There's a small, what seems like a kind of bandstand shaped structure in the middle of it. Um, and like I say, in the distance you can see balloons and flowers attached to some gravestones and some of the some of them are a lot older than others there's larger ones and smaller ones but it's all very neat and tidy and it's um, it's a very very given it's in the centre of the city it's quite a peaceful place and it was here I'm just stood on the outside of it now and it was here that Percy said that Maud had been buried. But the reality was, though she was dead, he hadn't laid her to rest there. Where he'd laid her to rest was next door at Highfield Lane Allotments. Uh, I'm just there now and there's someone at the gate so I'm going to see if I can um, see if they'll let me in to have a quick look Excuse me Sorry, hello Can I just come in for a little walk? Yeah. Yeah, right. I'm just I'm doing a local history project and Hello, hello <laughs> I just wanted to go and have a look at the allotment. Thank you. Oh, God, what's he, he's beautiful. He's beautiful. We've been for a walk with my Labradors in the car. Yeah. So I didn't think I could bring him in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was kind of them. So I'm inside the allotments now, and it's actually quite a nice allotment spot. There's, they're few and far between nowadays. But there's the allotment committee shed. Um, there's chutney for sale, apparently. Uh, I need to ring Sue if I fancy some of that. The AGM is taking place on Thursday, half seven, at the social club. Um, key items have discussed. No bonfires on site. From memory, that was a, that was an always an issue. And I didn't think that this you could do this in allotments anymore. But the signs up saying your dog should be on a lead, so you should know that he's done the deed. The inference being, pick up your poo before we go. And as it turns out, it was a, a fellow allotment owner who was out walking his lurcher on the day that, that discovered Maud's body. Um, the allotment in question was number 46. Now the numbers here seem really high, so 
that says 1708 so I could be in for a bit of a walk One thousand six hundred ninety-eight. Hello. Hey. Uh, Hi. Good afternoon. <laughs> There's a real variety of allotments here. There are some which are turned over, and there's kind of a row of onions growing out of the soil which is all well kept and there's others which are raised beds there's some which have got quite elaborate polytunnels or there's the odd greenhouse little sheds huge pile of manure but yeah it's a nice it's a nice allotment you don't like I say, it's probably the, the first allotment I've been on in years. And I do remember being a kid and allotments being, well, it's kind of like a big part of that, really. And I think about Gran and Grandad and what their allotment meant to them. And then as a result of that, what what it meant to all of us grandkids and my mum and my auntie one thing I always I always think about when I think about the Ottoman is that um, although everyone's got their own kind of delineated spaces one thing you really see is there's such a there's quite a lot of shared activity in terms of you can get a couple of sacks of horse manure that someone's bought and it'll sell you a bit on or you might people would tend to buy a couple of trays of plants and split them between the two of them And I think in recent years allotments have become a bit more popular. I think they've taken off again really. I think it's a combination of lockdown, people wanted a chance to get out and about. I think people are a bit more interested in where the food comes from. used to be a lot bigger no they've always been this size yeah where does the numbering come from god only knows <laughs> well, i'm chairman down here really and i don't i don't know where the numbering came from i think a lot of i switched off my recorder at this point one of the two chaps i was speaking to is ken the chairman of the allotment association and he did in fact know about maud's murder there'd been mention of the case in the last meeting's minutes of the allotment committee it seems that Percy's allotment 
which I said before was 46, but was actually 48, is one I'd already walked past. Now numbered 7,000 or something, it was right by the entrance I came through earlier, just on the left-hand side, opposite the committee hut and notice board. I took a few moments at the spot where, unceremoniously and callously, Percy had buried his wife's body in the spot he told people he was preparing to plant an apple tree. From the evening of Percy's arrest to his execution on the 20th of March, 1922, was 126 days. 126 days in which a body was discovered, murder assessed, the perpetrator apprehended, a court established guilt, two appeals rejected and a sentence enacted. 126 days in which acres of newspaper coverage were dedicated to a crime committed by what the Derby Mercury described as a heartless father, adulterer and murderer. 126 days in which almost nothing is written, either in Derby or elsewhere in Britain, about Maud Atkins. I've searched and searched and searched again. I've visited local archives, the Derbyshire Local Study Centre, I know she was 29 when she died. I know she came from a loving family. She grew up on a farm in a small village in Cambridgeshire. The same farm and the same family which took responsibility for her orphan children after her death. Before meeting Percy and moving to Derby, she worked as a housemaid for a local family. I know what she was wearing the day she was murdered. As to her character her ambitions, her thoughts, or even the colour of her hair. Nothing. A charismatic, manipulative, egotistical killer has eclipsed her in death, just as his wants and desires eclipsed hers during her short life. That not one photograph exists of her, while Percy's face looked out from every newspaper in the country, surely tells us something about the world she all too briefly inhabited.